0: Amen. Thank you, Micah. If your experience has been like my experience, you've seen that we have outsourced death in the American West. Here's what I mean. For most of humanity, when people would reach an age where they would die at the end of life, they would probably die in someone's home, really close to loved ones. And there's some places where that still happens, praise God, for industries and ministries like hospice, right? And I think about our word in death so close to UMC and the other hospitals here. I think about people who are here in the life of this church. So many of you are in the business of death, not necessarily killing people, but keeping people from dying. Dr. Death, that was such a weird experience, right? Not that you're in the business of helping people live a little bit longer. And then there's some people who are in industries that are kind of death adjacent, like mine. We're around death a little bit more than most people. It's a high and holy honor for me to be in and around people at the time that they pass, and then to be next to families as they walk through the process of honoring someone in a funeral. It really is interesting, though, to think that death is so much different for us than it has been for most of humanity. I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm the executive pastor of ministry, and it's really a privilege for me to be here today. Always honored to preach, especially excited to preach about this today. Not just death, but what we have that comes on the other side of death, the resurrection. So if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15, you'll find that that's where we'll be today. And I wanna show you at kind of a 10,000 foot view, not quite 30, but we're not gonna be in the weeds, seven things that we find in the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. Seven things that the resurrection shows us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first thing we find is that the resurrection helps us found our fulfillment. It founds our fulfillment. We find our place. We find our purpose inside the work of the resurrection. When I think about fulfillment as a concept of the Bible, and then even as a concept that exists in my life, I think about this thing, the low fuel light. And you might be like me and have a toxic relationship with this thing, or you might have a sadistic relationship with this thing, Or you might have a law around the law concerning this thing. We talk about this in our staff a lot, at our staff team here at Fauner Church. Several people who are in the types of jobs that you would want them to be in, people who help us make sure that we're not in the ditch financially and that things are working well and we're building happy people and healthy culture, they are almost pharisaical with the low fuel light. They have a limit that they get to before the limit that they get to where they pull over and get their gas. And there are other people who might include people like me and Robert and Van who are willing to drive with this thing well past the point of comfort for most people. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because I am sadistic and maybe it's because I'm a glutton for punishment and I need more risk in my life. I haven't gone to therapy about my low fuel light, some other things, but not the light. But I do know that when we think about cars, we think about gas that must go in them, that there's a tank by design that is supposed to be full and operate at its peak capacity and potential when there's fuel inside the tank. And this is what we see for us as one of the realities that we have in the resurrection. Today, I want us to look at not just what the resurrection did for Jesus, but what the resurrection does for us. Again, we live in a place where death is at arm's length, so it's hard for us often to think about our own mortality and to think about the things that would come with that but it's not just that the resurrection's for then and there at the end of our days when we take our last breath, but the resurrection informs us today. It's what Paul wants to write, write here and to work here, and that's what I want us to look at. So as we think about the resurrection fulfilling some things, let's look in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul would write this, for I delivered to you a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures the first thing that we see that's fulfilled here is the scripture that god would from the beginning of time known that we needed an atoning sacrifice someone who would bear the punishment for our sin For the things we did that God commanded us not to do and the things we have not done that he's commanded us to do, because of that, we deserve to be separated from him here on the earth and in the life to come. But praise be to God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus made a way on the cross. So we see in the cross, fulfillment, And often, here's what I think we miss when we sing about Jesus and we preach about Jesus and we think about Jesus, we think about his life, yes, as an example and as someone for us to be like, remember the origin of the word Christian, as little Christ, that we would be miniature Jesuses running around. We also would see in the nature of being a Christian that we would follow Jesus in his resurrection, that his life after death is a life for us to emulate, not just the time that he had on the earth, but the time that we'll experience together with him when we return, and that's what this passage goes to. But the second thing I want us to look at is the fulfillment that we find from the personal experience that we get from knowing and encountering Jesus. We see this, that it pushes us to proclamation. There's some people out in the crowd now at this service not the first service, because that was way too early, who went to the Dominican Republic this week on a mission trip with and Church. About a dozen people went and administered some medical care to a rural community in the mountains in Hispaniola. There are also some people who went door-to-door to share the gospel to a people group that's really under-engaged in a type of faith that would be a personal Jesus people could take as their Lord and as their Savior. They saw people come to faith on the time that they We're on this trip, quite a powerful time. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it and a mission trip might be next for you. We just released our calendar for our coming mission trip. There's a men's trip to Matamoros, Mexico that's coming up the week of uh, of, uh, Thanksgiving, November 20-something, you can find it on the website. But we know that there are opportunities for us to go and to serve, not just around the world, but even next door to us and the people that God would have placed around our lives. So we see that the resurrection pushes us to proclamation. I went with push on purpose, because if you're like me, to speak the gospel into someone, to hold up the glory of the resurrected Jesus, often you need a little bit of a nudge. And we find that here in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pick up in five. Then he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the 12th, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Man, I wish I had so much more time to unpack this for you, but I'll tell you, in my own life, in my own faith, in my own holiness, doing work to find the irrefutable nature, it cannot be refuted that Jesus of Nazareth lived and that there's evidence of his resurrection. You know, you get on the internet, you listen to cynics, and you read things, whatever, and you'll find people who will question the life of Jesus on either side of the grave. And just to be frank here, not because I'm a pastor, not because I'm employed, not because this is a company line that I have to tow, but because of what God's shown me in the world and what he's shown me in his word, it is hard for me to believe that there are people who would consider jesus as someone who's been invented by history we have so much more historically on the life and ministry of jesus than we do on other people who are his contemporaries give or take a few years we often say did jesus really say that but we would never say did socrates really see that and the amount of information that we have on the life of jesus versus the life of socrates very bleak again we see very bleak examples of people who we would say yeah of course they existed." people like Julius Caesar people like Augustus Caesar we just take what we see in some dusty pieces of paper with those guys but then when the paper stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks we begin to question the legitimacy of the life of Jesus so friends I would say go and do your own research and you'll find that it is irrefutable that Jesus Christ lived And that there is evidence, not just of his life on one side of the grave, but historical evidence of his life on the other side of the grave. That's what we see Paul saying here, is he appeared to all these men, and this was written just a few decades after Jesus would have come back to life. Jesus would have resurrected sometime in the 30s, and this was written sometime in the 60s. So we know that there are people who had seen and touched Jesus on both sides of the grave, who these people were 1 or 2 degrees of separation from what's that game people play with kevin bacon 5 degrees of separation from kevin bacon like somebody's been in a movie somebody's been in a movie somebody's been in a movie it was even fewer degrees of separation from jesus with these people of the first century so paul would say hey look if you got questions about if this guy came out of the ground i got people and i'll point you to him for your own continued reading for later, I'd recommend two books. One is much larger than the other. I would encourage The Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. It's a book that's about 700 pages long, so use that as a reference. You can also laugh at me for recommending that. And then secondly, a much more accessible book is a book called Is Jesus History by John Dixon. It's probably 90 pages. So depending on whether you're a dork or not, there are your two books. But we see this, that Jesus' life and his historical resurrection is hard to argue against. And so much of who we are and what we do and the way that the world has been built hinges on that. So we see the authenticity of Jesus' life. And then, secondly, we see that because of that, it pushes us to proclamation. Paul would write this, and I love it. He says in verse 11 whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. I mean, I love this, and can I say we need more of this in the church in 2023, that people would say, hey, there's a long list of people who've seen Jesus, a long list of people who've experienced Jesus, a long list of people who are doing personal ministry, and it doesn't matter whose umbrella you're under, whose discipleship tree you're in. If we were selling cosmetics or something, whose multi-level marketing scheme you're in, pyramid scheme. It doesn't matter whose person you are. Remember, we see in 1 Corinthians 3 that Paul would already refute this. He would say, Paul planted Apollos watered, water, but God gives the growth, right? So here's what I'm saying to you, and here's why this matters for the way that we would proclaim, the way that we would take the gospel places, because so often in Christianity, we are petty and we measure our ministry against someone else's. And I'm not just talking about me, like professional Christians. I'm talking about us, people who would claim the name of Jesus. We want the big Bible study. We want the kids that are going on mission trips. We want to start the local ministry or nonprofit. Instead of looking and saying, God, this is an assignment that you've given them. You've placed them in the circumstance. You've given them this people and this set of skills and this set of talents and abilities and gifts for your glory here, and I can cheer for them, and I can be doing my work here. We need more of that. How often in my life am I sinful and guilty and say, God, if you're going to do it, you can only do it through me. How dare I limit God? How dare we limit God? When we think about why we would take the gospel places, why you would be willing to go against some degree of social controversy or, or maybe even feel awkward or let yourself out to dry by not just sharing the gospel for salvation with someone, but speaking the truth and the glory of resurrected Jesus, it is interesting for us so often we don't do that because we have a low view of other people. And this is a quote that's been a lot to me through the years. I encountered it several years ago. Lewis wrote this in The Weight of Glory. and He talks about how there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal, he would say. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these things are mortal. And their life to our life is the life of a gnat. But it's immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. They become immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. But that does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. Just because eternity is great for some and terrible for others, that doesn't mean that we need to go around with frowns painted on. Lewis says this, we must play, we must be joyful, but our merriment must be of that kind and in fact is the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset, from the jump, the very beginning, taken each other seriously. No flippancy no superiority, and no presumption. The resurrection and life after death, not just life in heaven, but life when Jesus returns to the earth, it changes the boundaries of how we live. No longer are people coincidentally in our path, but they are divinely placed by the Lord. He prepared good works in advance for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10. All right, the third thing we see is a sign of our salvation. Jesus shows us in his resurrection a sign that we can trust him as truthful. We read this in verse 13. But if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he did, raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead aren't raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep have perished. Remember, this is a long letter when Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. There were no chapters, no verses. Those are there for our references. And he writes this after having spent time in Corinth as a spiritual father, as a teacher, as one who would help them establish that church and gone for some time, heard that they had specific questions that they had diverted from the way. So that's why we've referred to this series as addressing the problems that divide us, the questions that divide us, the things that we would ask and say, is this true or is this true? And we see the concept of the bodily resurrection from the dead and even Jesus himself coming out of the grave is something that the church in Corinth was questioning. But here's what Paul says, that God in his mercy showed us what we know we have to experience, life with Jesus when we die. You see that in places like 1 Thessalonians 4. And the promise of a resurrected body, we'll get to the specifics later, when Jesus returns to the earth. They were worried because the Greco-Roman culture of the day would say, hey, when people die, they live some kind of shadowy existence, a half-life in the underworld, where people don't recognize people and they just bump around aimlessly until the end of time. Others would say, perhaps what some would believe in 2023, that we take the long nap, that we eternally slumber. But Paul would reject that as Christ rejected that, as the scriptures of the Old Testament would reject that. And they would say instead, because we have seen a sign that God is able to raise people from the dead, and that Jesus himself was not bound by the grave, but that as God has defeated death, so he defeats death in us, that our death here is temporary. We have an eternity outside of our death, and then a restoration of our bodies. The fourth thing we see is this. It secures our shared authority. Our authority is shared with two things, two parties here, and we'll take a look at both of those. But the resurrection secure, secures our shared authority. Let's look at this. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive. We see Adam, the first man, the father of humanity, one who, as he came first, sinned first, and then sin would follow us like a disease, like a hereditary degenerative order, that it would be something in our life that would crouch at our door, Genesis would write in the early chapters. So we see that Adam initiated this, but that Christ initiated a better way, the way of life, the way of love, the way of grace, the way of freedom. We see this, each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, shall be made alive, and that at his coming, those who belong to Christ Then comes the end where he delivers the kingdom to God after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Before we skip to 25, I want to look at this with you in 23. We see this, Christ, the first fruits. And you know, here we are in Mississippi, we're agricultural adjacent. Some of you guys have hobby farms and you got plants in your backyard and so on and such. I have the greatest black thumb, I think, in the history of the world. Any plant that comes within me, it sees me, and it cries in terror and dies. But this is a tomato that came from my mom's house. Uh, Apparently, it's it's, uh, just now not tomato season. They die around the 4th of July. Maybe not dead, but they stop producing fruit. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm talking about here. But all I know is the tomato plant makes tomatoes, and early on, when it's just a bunch of little vines and leaves and things like that, something pops up, and it makes people happy they go, ah, this plant will produce fruit. It's a first fruit. Now, when we think about first fruit in the church, almost automatically we go to what? Money. We think about the tithe. We think about the offering. And I am one of the people, I'm unapologetic about this, I believe that the tithe and the offering is a biblical command that we would, as God has from old, instruct his people to set aside first things for his glory, It's a way where we would say, God, I see this thing, this money that you've given me. It is provision in my life. It is what helps me purchase things like this tomato and the tomato plants and all the things. And I need it. But I see that you've given it to me. So I give it back to you, Lord, for the works of worship and justice and goodness in the world. It's a first fruit that we would see as we get it in, that we would set it aside to give it back and here's what we see in Jesus as the first fruit from the dead he was willing to come here first and to die first so that we could see the fruit that would come after just like for you as you give to the Lord with your time and with your money and with your ability and with your affection your devotion you give him that first part preeminence prominence the place he rightfully deserves. When he's enthroned there, the rest follows. And the same is true with the first fruits from the dead. That because of Jesus' resurrection, we know we will share in his resurrection, his first obedience for our eventual blessing. Let's continue here in verse 25. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he, that's God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That's Jesus. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I'll help you with the subjection to him, subjection to him. Here's what we see in this passage. That God the Father, who set the world in motion, is going to make all things right. As one writer would say of the end of death, of Jesus' return, of what we experience in the presence of God, that every sad thing becomes untrue and somehow is more beautiful for being lost or broken. We see that God, from the very beginning, intended to have a world of order and peace and wholeness, where we would walk with him and behold him face to face. Man, how far away is the world from that? We see brokenness and sin, abuse, addiction, pain in your life, pain in my life, pain in the world. But we see here that part of Jesus' resurrection and part of our resurrection, God will use to defeat all other things. And in a beautiful Trinitarian passage here, we see the God the Father with ultimate authority would allow God the Son to rule and to reign and to conquer. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we reign with Him. I think about Romans 8 where co-heirs. Every good thing God has, it's ours. It's ours now in part, but it will be ours now in full at the resurrection. Here's what I want to show you. Here, there's a picture of a tomato plant. that's not the tomato plant that that came off of, but I ate lunch with one of my friends, Gus, this week, and Gus told me this story. I thought it was too on brand not to tell you this. Here's what happened. They uh, bought that little planter thing. You know, it's very chic. That's what people are doing now, right? They're buying little planter things like that and buying wildflower seeds and throwing them out. And one man's trash is another man's treasure. I think categorically they're weeds, but they're plants in this setting. So she bought some seeds that he said, quote, weren't worth nothing. So Apparently, they didn't grow, but these people are not remarkably crunchy, but I guess crunchy enough to compost. So they had their scraps, their food scraps from things progressively, and in those food scraps that they used to grow what they hoped would be flowers was apparently a tomato, and a tomato that had a seed, and a seed that took, and a seed that grew that tomato plant. And so it is with Christ, friends, he, rejected by man, despised, considered garbage, that his life would be reduced to nothing so that we might share in the life to come and he might be a first fruit of it. The last, the next thing we see, sorry is five, that it absolves us of our absurdity. It's the accusation of absurdity that people would look at you and they would go, you're crazy. Why do you live this Christian life? Why don't you go with your natural urges? Why do you fight for holiness? Why do you give money away and spend time on other people? Why do you want to honor your husband or your wife or care about what kind of parent you are? All the accusations that we face as people and all the internal whispers that Satan would give to us to act in a way contrary to the power of the resurrected Jesus. The resurrection absolves us of our absurdity. Let's read this in 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Don't worry, I'm going to get there. If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if humanly speaking. I fought with the beasts at Ephesus. That sounds cool. And the dead are not raised. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. What is Paul doing here? How do those things even line up with each other? But he says this, hey, if the resurrection is not something that Jesus truly experienced, then our faith has no reality. And if our faith has no reality, we should do whatever we want to do. Y'all remember when YOLO was a thing a couple years ago? You only live once? This is like the original YOLO. Paul's saying that people in Corinth were going, hey, it doesn't matter. We're just going to take the long nap after this anyway. So eat, drink, and be merry. And tomorrow we die. What a bleak view of reality. But it's not that we would believe better for some false thing because we'd say, hey, if we all subscribe to this lie together, then the world's going to be a happier and more peaceful place. No. Paul would categorically reject that, and he would say, if Jesus raised from the dead, if he came back to life, if he's going to share that with us, if we experience him when we die, then for us, we need to live our life like it now. Friends, where is our life out of alignment? Where are we off the following path of being little Jesuses? This is Paul telling his people, evaluate yourselves. Think about your life. Think about your holiness. Think about your faithfulness. Not that we have to be perfect. Not that we have to be people who do every single little thing right. Praise God for grace. We see in the scripture something we can all attest to, that we don't do the things that we want to do and we do the things that we don't want to do. Oh, wicked man am I, who will save you from this work of death, this body of death? Praise be to our Lord, Jesus Christ, and God our Father. Right? We see deliverance in the cross. But man, I'm telling you, this is important for us. What is it in you that would say, following Jesus is worth it? It's worth the rub in my life, inconvenience, service, sacrifice. Why would I do these things, even if I don't want to do them for God's glory? It's because of the resurrection because our life goes beyond our life. There's an eternity for us that we can share in. So for us, if we would believe otherwise, that when we die, we just take the long nap, let me challenge you to read the scripture and see the beauty of eternal life. And if you feel off, if you feel like your life's not measuring up, like you need to grow in holiness, today is a great day to start. Go to the Lord, repent, he's gracious and merciful with new mercies every morning. Sixth, we see that it betters our view of our bodies. I wish I could spend so much time here in a culture that idolizes and worships bodies and body image, but we'll look at this and say a few things. And 35, we see that Paul uses three illustrations. He talks about different types of plants, he talks about different types of animals, and he talks about different types of stars to talk about the body that we'll have in the resurrection. He says this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? He says this, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow in the body is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or some other kind of grain. But God gives it a body as he's chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body, for not all flesh is even the same. But there's one kind for humans and another for animals and another for birds and another for fish. And then there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. But there's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star and glory. For so it is with the resurrection of the dead, though it's sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. What's sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, and it's raised in power. It's sown in natural body. And it's raised a spiritual body. And if there's a natural body, then also a spiritual body. Here's what's interesting. We see in this that the Corinthians would say, hey, what kind of bodies are we talking about here? Because as Christians in the first century, they would have faced a great deal of persecution. So they're wondering, hey, if somebody goes to the grave at 80, do they come out at 80? If someone was beheaded, do they come out all in their head? If someone was impaled or torn limb from limb or attacked by a beast for public spectacle when they were going to honor Jesus and not renounce their faith in him, how do they come out? How do we come out? And it's fascinating that we would see here that Paul would say, hey, it is categorically different than you would even consider. Doing work on this this week, I looked up what people would consider the peak ages of humanity, of human efficiency. Like, at what age do you peak as a person? And it was crazy. One study that I found only came out a couple of weeks ago, and it was all over the place. There was one age where long term memory was the best. There was another age where people felt like their workplace competency was the best. There's another place where people felt like their long term task focus was the best. There was another place where people felt like their athletic ability was the best. There's another age where people felt like their ability to learn and acquire other languages was the best. All over the place. So for us, when we think about the resurrection, Often, if you thought about this, you probably thought me, and I'm like, what age am I going to come back at? Like, is it a version of me that's going to have a little more hair than I do right now? Like, something that resembles abs that you had once upon a time? Like, what are we going to come back like? And it is categorically different. He uses the picture of seeds, and he says, hey, look, one seed goes in this way. Seeds all look the same, but they come out this way. He goes to animals, and he says, hey, look, flesh feels the same, but it's different and even, he says, look at stars, look at the moon and uh, Jupiter that we can see on the horizon sometimes, or look at this star, and this star has a different glow. It's categorically different than anything we could ever consider. And one thing that I know we see and that applies to us today is we see beauty and diversity. That's why things like racism and some of the philosophy of eugenics are despicable, because we would say, God, we know what's beautiful, and we know what deserves life, and we know what looks good. And we usurp God's position as the creator and the author of life. And the same thing happens in the resurrection. That when Jesus returns, that those of us who have preceded his return in death, we are with him, we return to a glorious new resurrected body. And those who are here when Jesus returns are raised to a glorious resurrection body. So here's what we see, some things that we do know our resurrected body will be like. We see the way that it's sown, the way that it is now, and the way that it's raised, the way that it is new. We see the first thing, that what's sown is perishable. You've got a shelf life, but what's raised has no expiration date. It's beyond the glory of Vienna sausages or something gross like that that never expires. Don't think like that, think better. It's not hard to think better, but think better. Next, we see that it's sown in dishonor, that there's something about us that's weak and feeble, that's unholy, that's sinful, that's baked into our bones. But we're raised like Jesus, holy and set apart. We see this, that we're sown in weakness. You have limits. Don't you feel weak sometimes? I don't even mean physically weak, but I mean circumstantially weak. There's a limit to what you can do, a limit to what you can fix, a limit to what you accomplish. But in the resurrection, we rule with Christ when he makes all things right. And as the Father reigns and makes every sad thing untrue, we share in that authority. There's a lot of opportunity for us to do some fixing on this side of the grave. But we know one day God makes everything right, that we're raised in power. And lastly, that we have this, a natural body, that there's something to us that although there's beauty and although there's difference, although humanity is the crown jewel of creation, there's something better for us even on the other side. But it's hard to think about us right now and to think about the life that we'll step into. And the last thing I want to show you as I invite the band back up is this, that it delivers us from the worst parts of death. That the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, the apex of this chapter is that it delivers us from the worst parts of death. Not all death, but the worst parts. Let's read this, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. We see this, death, is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to stand, and as you stand, it's so that you're not scared when I put this picture on the screen of a spider. All right, that's a cartoon spider. (laughs) Zach put a real brown recluse on the first time and people started to leave and or pass out. So spiders, they're interesting. This is what we see the picture of and the sting of death. When I was 15 years old, I was bit by a brown recluse. And if you're familiar with brown recluses and anything in their arena, they have this venom They can do really weird things like make you go into cardiac arrest and apparently hallucinate. And the weirdest thing that they do is it starts to kind of uh, degenerate your musculature, like your flesh starts to rot. Sorry if that creeps any of you out. There's the cartoon spider. This is a compromise. But what we see here as we put the scripture back up is this picture that Paul would write and he would say, death, where is your sting? See, here's the thing. The sting of death is like the venom of a spider. So I didn't know that I was bitten by the spider. I just felt bad. I didn't really know what was up. The incision or the bite was small. I couldn't see it until a couple of days. But what I saw was the peripheral stuff. The fact that it looked like my leg was wasting away. But the pain of the bite, not much. But the venom that was doing the work. And here's what we find in the sting of death being taken is that the burden of sin in our life now? The shackles we're in. Is we long for the world to be made right. As we long for a place of perfect obedience. Don't you hate sin in your life? Don't you hate the way that Satan steals and kills and destroys? Don't you want his empire to end? That's what we see here in the world. But we know that the sting is being removed. We see that the life that we experience next is a fuller life life with jesus where he makes all things right yes we die yes we've lost people and i think about people who i am related to and that i love and that the fear of death of those around me people that i want to keep safe and keep near but we have this assurance that because there's no sting there's no eternal separation for those that would know Jesus, that for those of us in Christ, those of us saved by him, we've been made right for a glorious life after this and the power of his resurrection to come. Praise Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. I'm grateful, Lord, that there's no sting to death for those that know you. Lord, yes, we die, but we feel the impact of death. God, we despise it death feels wrong because it is wrong. You did not create us to die. Lord, instead we were created to know and to walk with you all the days of our life. Lord, I thank you for those that know you in this room, that believe on you for salvation, who walk with you faithfully. Lord, that now we can see you. It's like a veil, like a glass dimly lit. But one day, Lord, what we see in part, we'll see in full. And Lord, even in our bodies as they have a shelf life and they begin to decay and betray us. God, I think about my own chronic illness. I think about my own ways that I long to be what you created me to be. Lord, we know that one day you will come back and you will make it all right. And Lord, that it will be more beautiful because we know what we needed in the first place. So God, in our pain and in our suffering, would we remember the resurrection, God, as we mourn loss of life and as we think about people who've gone on before us to be with you, we thank you for the assurance of salvation. God, and we long for the day that we are reunited with them. So God, for us, would that push us to proclaim? Would we be gospel-sharing people? God, we thank you for your goodness. Would we would worship you for your goodness. Would we remember you, Lord, as the first fruit. And when we open ourselves up to be more obedient to you. Lord, I thank you for this time where we give to you tithes and offerings. Lord, we get to return first fruits as you are the truest and greatest first fruit. So, Lord, we pray that you bless these gifts and bless our lives, God, Would they be used for your service. We ask these things in your name. Amen. We invite the ushers forward. We will give back our tithes and offerings to the Lord as we continue to worship in song.